Hello, listeners. So nice to speak with you again. We will now begin Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries Unity in Christ program. For first-time listeners, my name is Christine Kim, and I am the host of this program. As we go into the month of July, there will be some changes in our English Unity in Christ program. A new program titled Christian Ethics will be starting as Pray in This Way will now come to an end. This program will guide us to know what ethical standards we as Christians should hold living in this world. Please stay tuned for this new program. Also broadcasted will be sermons by Pastor Mark Martin and Francis Chan. I hope that this past week was fruitful and that you each spent it earnestly seeking God. Evolutionists say that the age of our planet, Earth, is a few billion years old. Conservative Christians claim that the Earth is about 6,000 years old. Today's topic is not to discuss or debate evolution or creation, though. Whether you believe in evolution or creation, all of us live within the world that the Bible speaks of. What does this mean? It says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This refers to the start of everything. Every single person who has been born or who has died has come after Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. Furthermore, likely no one will be born after the second death that appears in the book of Revelations. All humanity will exist within the time frame of Genesis and Revelation. This means that all of humanity will live and die within this frame of time and that we are even now currently living during this time. To take a smaller slice of this time frame, we can look at the time that we are now alive in this way. We are now living within the frame of time between when Jesus ascended into heaven and the moment he returns. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, there are seven churches that are addressed. The church in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and the church in Laodicea. Each church has its own distinct characteristic. This is why biblicists have separated what each church symbolizes based on the characteristics of each church and on their time period. We'll be back to discuss more about these churches after our first song. Father, I want you to hold me. I want to rest. Your 
The seven churches in the book of Revelation were written by Apostle John. These churches were written during the years 8092 and 8095. While we know that these churches actually existed during that time, Biblicists help interpret what each church symbolized spiritually. The first church, the Church of Ephesus, which existed from 8030 to 8100, symbolized the Apostolic Church. The second church, the Church of Smyrna, which was from 8100 to 8313, represents the period of religious oppression in Roman. The third church, the Church of Pergamum, which was around 8313 to 8600, represents the time of Constantine's acceptance of the Christian cause and when Christianity began to hold influence. The fourth church, the Church of Thyatira, which existed around 8600 to 801517, represents the Dark Ages of religion. The fifth church, the Church of Sardis, which existed between 801517 to 801648, represents the Protestant Reformation. The sixth church, the Church of Philadelphia, existed between 801648 to 801900, and represents the spreading of the gospel through missionaries. And the last church, the Church of Laodicea, is from AD 1900 to today, represents the church that exists as we know it today until the day Jesus comes back, as well as the age of apostasy, the age in which people will deny their faith. After reviewing what each church represented and symbolized during the period they existed, it seems clear that the representation was accurate. One thought that can be frightening is that we are in the time of judgment meaning that we are in the Laodicean period of the church. But looking at the world today, 
The Church of Laodicea is not the only church that represents the world today. The Laodicea Church might represent today, but if you look all over the world where the gospel is being spread here and there, you can see the churches that reflect the traits of each of these seven churches. There are places where miracles happen, as in the early church, churches that are suffering from suppression, churches that are growing in power, where religion has completely failed and lost its light, places where there are reformation and revivals, places where missionaries continue to serve, places where people still continue to hold their lukewarm faith, which will eventually lead to the denial of their faith. Which church do you feel your faith belongs to? Or which church do you feel the church you are currently attending represents most out of the seven churches? I want us to really think about what each church represents and have a moment to realize where our faith lies as I hope this will lead to restoration. Jesus tells us through the Apostle John's writing in Revelation chapter 2, verse 2-7 regarding the church of Ephesus. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. When hearing this passage, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? It may be different for each individual, but for me the first thought that came to my mind was that Jesus Christ holds the right to life for each church. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. The thought that Jesus holds the right of life for each church may seem obvious, but for us to actually realize and feel this way is another story. This is because there are many situations where we confess that we lay everything down before God, but we move according to our knowledge, experience, and our own plans. If God removes the lampstand, there is nothing we can possibly do. Are all of our listeners living their life where they are laying everything down before the Lord? Or are we living according to our own thoughts and plans? How is your church? It is my wish that we think deeply on this matter and confess before Him. Joy.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Francis Chan of Cornerstone Church. Today's topic is What God Can Do Through Ordinary People, Part 1, based on Revelation chapter 11, verse 1 through 19. I hope you have a blessed time as you join Pastor Francis. Last night I did something that I have not done since high school. What I did last night, we had a you know, we had services here and everything. So I recorded the Laker game. You know, I don't know if you guys are doing You're going to miss an event, so you record it, and you don't want to hear the, the score or anything. I mean, went home and watched it. But uh, I remember in high school, I used to do that all the time. And I don't know if you've ever done it where uh, you record a game, and then you end up accidentally hearing the final score. You know, whether it's on the radio or someone gets so excited, they tell you. And so you go home and you watch the game anyways after hearing the score, but it's just not the same. You know, there's no sense of panic. You look at it, and he's like, oh, okay, they're behind by 20, but I know they come back. You know, and you just kind of watch, and you know it's going to happen. And so it takes away all the panic, all of that fear of who's going to win. And you guys, the truth is, is that's what the book of Revelation does for us. Okay? It tells us the final score. It tells us what's going to happen at the very end. And what the Bible also teaches in Revelation is it explains that, you know what? Our world is going to get worse and worse and worse before it gets better. And so what it does for us as Christians is, as it gets worse, we can kind of watch it and go, okay, I'm not happy with this, but I also knew it was going to happen. I'm not going to panic, I'm not going to worry, because I know what's going to happen at the end of the fourth quarter. You know, I know the final outcome. And you guys, really, as we study in the book of Revelation over the next few weeks, what it's going to describe is it's going to describe what uh, the world is going to look like at the end as far as uh, what Satan is doing. It's going to show the Antichrist kingdom. We're going to be studying that in a couple of weeks with the 666, the mark of the beast, and all of that that's going to go on. Um, we're going to study uh, about Satan himself and what he's trying to do on the earth during that time. And, and, and even today, we're going to see um, just the beginnings of that, of how the world, as we know it, is going to get more and more anti-Christian, um, against the morality of God. And, and I think, you know, even though I haven't been alive for very long, I've seen it happen in my own lifetime. I haven't been a Christian that long, and yet I see just the way the world views Christianity and how it changes every year. And I mean, and you see the things that used to be acceptable and what's acceptable today. I mean, it's amazing. And do you guys think it's going to turn around? Uh, <laughs> it doesn't look that way, does it? And really, what the Bible teaches is that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Now, why would God do that? Why would God allow things to get worse? I mean, why doesn't God just send Jesus right now? Why doesn't Christ return right now before we go through, you know, there's this future period where people are so hostile toward Christianity, even in our own country and worldwide? Why would he have that happen? Because already people are doubting God and they're questioning him and saying, well, if there's a God, why is there so much evil in the world? What's it going to be like when there's going to be more evil in the world? Because God predicts, he says that's going to happen in the book of Revelation. Why would he let it get so bad before he came in at the very end and turn everything around? No one knows for sure. But we do know that that's God's pattern in Scripture. I don't know if you've noticed this when you study your Bible, but you notice that God makes situations so desperate just so that he can show his power. I mean, think about it. Think about when the Jews were leaving Egypt and Moses leading them out there took him forever just to get Pharaoh to okay it. After all the plagues, they finally go. But now he has them backed up against the Red Sea. And he's got the whole Egyptian army coming towards him. Why did God do that? Why did he put him in such a desperate, a really hopeless situation? they got the sea on one side and they got an army coming at him at the other side. What are you going to do? It's impossible, right? Well, that's the situation God puts people in so he can show his power. So he could split the Red Sea and have him move on. Why did he get him in the middle of the desert where there's no food so they could starve to death? No, he put him in a hopeless situation so that he could have bread come from heaven and rain down for them to eat. Well, how come when Jesus found out that Lazarus was, getting, was sick, how come Jesus just kind of sat around and waited for a while before he went and visited him? And he gets over to Lazarus' house and everyone says, Jesus, you're too late. It's hopeless. Now he's been dead for days. You don't even want to go in his tomb. It's going to stink. That's what Scripture says. He stinketh, it says in the King James. <laughs> Literally. 
And it says, don't go in there. It's too late. This is a hopeless situation. If you came a few weeks ago, maybe you could have healed him, but now he's dead. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm the resurrection of life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And he tells Lazarus, come forth. Why? If it didn't get that hopeless, God wouldn't have been able to show that much power. You think of Jesus himself. Jesus is crucified. The spear is stuck in his side. And you see the blood and water come out. He is dead. He is buried in a tomb. And all the disciples say, okay, forget it. We're leaving. It's over with. It's hopeless. We thought he was the Messiah, but he's dead now. He can't be the Messiah. And everyone fled. Everyone just says, it's over with. And God says, it's not over. Let me show you my power. See, that's what God does. And that's what he does in this book of Revelation. Is he lets things get so bad to where the world goes, it's over. Christ, I mean, that that whole thing, it's gone. And God says, no, it's not. Let me show you just how powerful I am. And you guys, the truth is, is that the story of Moses... The story of Jesus, the story of Lazarus, the story of Revelation. It's probably the story of some of your lives. Or some of you in this room could say, you know, I was in a situation that was hopeless. Where I was backed up against the Red Sea. And you would think there is no way out. And I've heard testimony after testimony of people who say, man, God took me to a point where I just thought, there's no way I'll recover from this one. Then look at where I am today. And many of you have told me, gosh, five years ago, if someone told me I'd be sitting in a chair in a church worshiping God, I would have said you were crazy. And here I am. Why did God take it to that point just to show you how powerful he is? And that's what we'll see him do here in the book of Revelation, chapter 11. In verse 1, remember John has just eaten the scroll. He said it turned his stomach sour. Remember that, that whole thing we talked about a couple weeks ago? Here in verse chapter 11, verse 1, something else happens. It says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. But exclude the outer court. Don't measure it because it's been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Okay, what is this all about? John was just given a scroll to eat and now he's given this measuring rod and says, go and measure the temple of God. Why is God having him do these physical things? Well, that's another thing that God has done with his prophets. In the Old Testament, sometimes he would have the prophets not just speak the message, but he'd have them act them out. In fact, he told Isaiah, he says, you know what I, what I want you to do, Isaiah, is go and walk around naked. I mean, really? Eh? And so Isaiah walks around the city naked, and people are saying, hey, uh, why are you doing that? And, he, he, and, and the whole point was he was supposed to tell them, look, Egypt is going to be taken into captivity by the Assyrians. You see me, how I have nothing, that's going to happen to you. The Assyrians are going to take you away, and you'll have nothing. And everyone would remember that image. You know, it's hard to forget a naked man walking around, you know? And they'll equate that and go, okay, I remember that picture. God was telling us, that was his judgment, saying, look, this is going to be us pretty soon. He was prophesying the future. He, God told Ezekiel, he says, Ezekiel, dig a hole through the city wall. And then I want you to grab all of your clothes, like, like luggage, and pull them through the city wall hole and start walking away. And people will be saying, well, what are you doing? And saying, in the same way, you're going to be taken out of the city gates and all your possessions. You guys are going to have to leave this area when the Assyrians come in. And so God would have these people physically, you know, have props. Yeah, that's why I do what I do. You know, I mean, it's something about the visual picture that he wanted the people to get in their heads. He says, so he, here he tells John, he goes, I want you to take this measuring rod. It's like a yardstick. And go and measure the temple. And the whole idea was this picture of, a, of measuring this section that belonged to God. If you want to read more about this, read Zechariah chapter 2. Okay, not right now, but, but write that down. Zechariah chapter 2, and read it later because you see the same type of imagery used there where it's showing the judgment upon a city, and that's why Zechariah is measuring it there. And it's really the same type of situation here. God is marking off this area for judgment, and yet look what he says in verse 2, because he's in Jerusalem here at the temple. But in verse 2 he says, But exclude, don't measure the outer court, because it's been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Okay, Gentiles is a term for unbelievers. 
Okay, the, the people who didn't believe in the God of the Jews, they would just say they were the Gentiles. They didn't believe in the one true Yahweh God. And what God says in this passage here in Revelation 11 is that this temple mount, this area, and really he says the whole city is going to be trampled upon, taken over by the unbelievers for 42 months. Okay, what is the significance of the 42 months? I've alluded to this before. Okay, 42 months, that's three and a half years. Now, understand, in Daniel chapter 9, it talks about a seven-year period. This is Old Testament now. Daniel chapter 9 talks about a seven-year period, what we call the tribulation period in the end times. You may have heard that term before, the seven-year period. Now, it says, and really, the book of Revelation most of it focuses on what's going to take place during those seven years that Daniel prophesied about hundreds of years ago. Okay, what's going to take place? Well, thousands of years ago now. What's going to take place during that seven-year period? Daniel 9 describes that during that seven-year period that someone is going to make a covenant or a treaty that will allow the Jews to restore their temple worship and sacrifice. Okay? And he promises for seven years, the Jews will be able to restore their sacrifices there in the Temple Mount, there in Jerusalem. Now, it says also that in the middle of those seven years, that treaty will be broken, three and a half years into it, or 42 months into it. That the Antichrist is going to set up an idol in the temple, and say the Jews are no longer allowed to worship and offer up sacrifices here. Believers in God can't do that anymore. Now you must worship my image. And for that whole second three and a half years, it's really talking about the Antichrist and his reign, which we'll get into in a little bit. And that's what it's talking about here when it says during those 42 months, that three and a half year period, that the city is going to be trampled upon. Now that's really interesting if you look at the events and what's going on right now in Israel. Okay? There's no peace in Israel. Why is there no peace in Israel? Because of an ongoing fight between the Jews and the Arabs. Now, what is at the Temple Mount? There's no temple, no real temple there. There's a hideous temple there that uh, absolutely degrades everything we believe in. The Dome of the Rock, they call it, which is inscribed on the inside of the Dome of the Rock. It says, there is one God and he has no son. Okay? So blatantly anti-Christian and it's sitting there on the Temple Mount. Okay, now you've got the Jews, you know, who are standing at the Wailing Wall to that area, and they're weeping because of what's on that mount. They're weeping because they want God to return. They want to, they want to worship there, but they can't because the Muslims have their mosque there. They have the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and they have the Temple Mount right there. Now, there's not going to be peace in the Middle East until something is solved. Who gets to worship on that, that holy mount? I mean, they both say it's their holy site, you know, and, and really, if you study the history of, of the Muslim religion, I mean, it really started to destroy Judeo-Christianity, you know, and so they're not going to let go of it. And the Jews say they, they want to build their temple. In fact, there's a group, and I think I've talked about them before, the Temple Faithful. There's a group of people in Israel today, in Jerusalem today, who swear up and down that they are going to rebuild that temple. In fact, I visited their shop. When I was there just a, a couple months ago, and do you realize, you know how in the Old Testament specifications of all the utensils that have to be in the temple and how they got to be made just perfectly this way, that way, you know, made of different types of metals and this and that, just elaborate things. Do you realize that there is a group called the Temple Faithful that have already reconstructed all of those utensils? That's what they tell us. They have reconstructed everything that's supposed to go in the temple except for the ark because they say they know where it is. Now, I don't really believe them, but, you know. But they say, no, 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 we, we know where it is. You know, and the girl, you know, was explaining, uh, we know exactly where it is. I can tell you where it is. Anyways, they've reconstructed all the things and they say, you know, we know where the ark is and we're going to rebuild this temple. And not only that, but uh, they, they, they are raising currently the red heifers that they would use to, to offer sacrifices up there. They're breeding those. Not only that, but they are training up the priests to carry out the temple duty. Okay, so you've got this group of people that are ready to go and say, it's going to happen. All we've got to do is get up there. 
and build this thing. And uh, and they will come. But uh, that's what they're waiting for. Now, now, they can't do that, though, because of the Muslims up there. Now, what if someone came along? I mean, Clinton tried to bring peace to the situation. It didn't happen. Bush tried it. It's not happening. What if someone did come along right now, today, and was able to bring peace to this this war that's been going on for thousands of years, really, between the Jews and the Arabs? What if someone was able to bring peace to that situation and say, here's a treaty that both sides agree to, and it allows the Jews to worship up there on the Temple Mount, along with the Muslims? Can you, can't you see the whole world kind of going, wow, peace in that situation? And you can see why people would follow that type of world leader. And you can see how he could rise to power and become, really, you know, and be the Antichrist that the Bible talks about who during the middle of his seven-year treaty breaks it off and says, no, the Jews are no longer allowed to worship on this mount. I'm going to set up my own idol, and you guys need to worship this. In fact, the whole world needs to worship me. And you see how it would kind of make sense. Well, that's, I kind of went way beyond what I wanted to. But uh, that's, uh, that's what this is talking about. That trampling period is that second three and a half years where the Antichrist will have his kingdom and... It's a Gentile ruling thing. It's, it's all about people who don't believe in the true God, Yahweh, or refuse to worship him. Now, what is God going to be doing at that time? Because remember, the, the Antichrist is going to be killing people who don't have the mark of the beast. So Christians are being killed all the time. Who's going to stand up for God? Who's going to be his witnesses? That's what this passage is about. Verse 3. He says, I'll give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Okay, 1,260 days, that's three and a half years. And then uh, clothed in sackcloth, that's what uh, prophets of doom used to wear. And it says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. I don't have time to get into that, but uh, basically read Zechariah chapter 4 if you want to understand the lampstands and the olive trees. But real quickly, what does a lampstand represent in the book of Revelation? Church, yeah. It represents the churches. Remember that from the first few chapters, how there were seven lampstands representing the seven churches? And it represents a church because it's the light of the world. As Jesus says, you know, you are the light of the world. You are the lampstands. Now, these two witnesses are called the lampstands because I, I believe it's because the church has been raptured at this point. And you've got these two witnesses who really are the light to the world. In many ways, they are the, the witnesses for God. As far as the olive trees, what those represent, you'll see it in Zechariah also. The olive trees are what produce the olive oil that fueled the lampstands. So they symbolize the Holy Spirit, really, that fuels these people and gives them power, and tremendous power. Because remember, people are being killed for speaking up about Jesus Christ. What enables these two witnesses to speak up and not die? That's the cool part. That's the next verse, verse 5. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Okay, so these men have tremendous power. That's why they're not killed. Anyone who tries to kill them, they have the power to kill their persecutors. Now, who are these two witnesses? We're not sure. No one can be absolutely sure. I mean, it could be anyone. It could be people in this room. It could be someone who's alive on the earth today, or it could be someone who's yet to be born, or, and this is what a lot of people believe, and I, I think I lean toward this, I don't really think I'm one of them. That it's someone from the past that comes back. And there are, there's a, a group of quite a few people who believe that these two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. Okay, from the Old Testament. And the reasons are, are there's several good reasons to take this educated guess. Um, one is because of the things that Elijah and Moses did when they were on the earth. And you compare them to what these guys do. These guys breathe fire on and kill their, their enemies. And that's exactly what Elijah did. Two times, one, one time there was a group of guys, of 50 soldiers that came to arrest Elijah, and Elijah calls fire from heaven and fire burns the 50 people up. 50 more soldiers come to Elijah to arrest Elijah, 
And uh, Elijah does the same thing, calls fire from heaven and burns the people up. A third group comes to Elijah, you know, and you think they learned, but these people look at Elijah and go, okay, we know what you did to the last guys, please don't fry us. You know, and so he doesn't, he has mercy on them. But you also remember on Mount Carmel, when uh, the prophets of Baal are all, you know, challenging Elijah, or Elijah's really challenging them, and he calls down fire, you know, to, to consume that sacrifice. If you don't know a lot about the life of Elijah, even if you do, next week, Doug is preaching on Elijah. Doug Fox is going to be speaking on the life of Elijah. And uh, it's an incredible story when, when you study the man. But also, what else did Elijah do? Remember in James chapter 5, and in talking about prayer, it says, you know what? Remember the prayer of Elijah. Elijah was a powerful man. What did he do? He prayed that it would not rain on the earth, and it did not rain for how long? Three and a half years. Okay, isn't that interesting? That these men have the power to, you know, breathe fire from their mouths to consume their enemies, and they can shut up the sky so it does not rain, and they're witnesses for three and a half years. So people say one of them is Elijah, and they say the other guy is probably Moses, because it also says they have the power to turn water into blood. That's what Moses did. They also have the power to strike the earth with every kind of plague, what Moses did. And here's the clincher, is in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus went up to the mountain with a couple of his disciples. And remember, Jesus is transfigured before them, and they get to see some of his glory, but they also see two people with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. So, okay, it could be coincidence, but it seems to make sense. You kind of go, okay, that... That could be them, but it, I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying that's a good, educated guess. Anyways, so they, they are speaking for God, and they will proclaim the gospel to the world, you know, and no one can touch them until verse 7. It's all about you. 
Seoul Gospel Ministry is looking for volunteers in tech editing to ensure the quality of the broadcast and the addition of more encouraging and empowering programs. Volunteer hours are three hours a week, and anyone who's had experience with computer before can participate. And don't worry if you're not familiar with the sound editing program. Heart and Soul will provide basic training and editing. So if anyone is interested in helping out our ministry, please contact us at 602-866-8999. Thank you. Please stay tuned as we are following a program that guides us to know what ethical standards we as Christians should hold, titled Christian Ethics. Hello listeners, this is Brian Winston, and today we begin a new program called Christian Ethics. There are certain morals and ethics we live by in this world. There are certain similarities and differences in the morals and ethics between different countries and different parts of the world. For example, Eskimos had a culture where they would offer their wives to visitors they valued. For them, that was something ethical to do. On the other hand, most people of this world would think this to be an unethical thing to do. Depending on the religion and culture, there are some countries that allow polygamy and there are some that are against polygamy. Some countries prefer capitalism and other countries prefer communism. Some ethics and morals change over time. For example, about a hundred years ago in Korea, it was morally correct to value the body you received from your parents, including your hair. So it was an unethical act to cut your hair. However, in the 1970s and 80s, men with long hair were forced to cut their hair by the government. Fast forward to today, and anyone is free to maintain whatever hairstyle they want. It was the same for adultery. Korea was one of the few countries that treated adultery as a criminal offense. However, after recent changes to the law, adultery is no longer considered a crime in Korea. As these examples demonstrate, world standards of ethics and morals have changed and will continue to change over time by its culture and location. That is why we cannot rely on the ethics of the world. Changing standards can never be a reliable standard. In philosophical studies, ethics is a major topic. Ethical study strives to set the standard for judging an action to be right or wrong. Philosophy majors study the changing trends of the world's ethics and try to set a standard that satisfies all. So then, what ethical or moral standard should Christians who have become God's children through the blood of Jesus Christ follow? Would the ever-changing worldly standards really suffice? As we reach the 21st century, we entered an era where same-sex marriage was accepted as a worldwide human moral right and it became unethical to claim same-sex marriage as sin. Would this kind of ethical standard truly be the way our God wishes the people of His kingdom to live by? I just express Christians as the people of our God's kingdom. This expression tells us exactly which world standards we must live by. As the people of our God's kingdom, we must live by the ethics and morals of the kingdom of our Father. When we talk about these ethical standards, the Pharisees may come to mind. However, living by God's ethical standards is clearly different from the claims made by the Pharisees that living by ethical rules will lead to salvation. We also have family cultures that guide our ethical behaviors. The family members keep those standards and maintain their own cultures. For example, for example a family going to church every Sunday for an 11 a.m. service, children with curfews, respecting elders, setting children's bedtimes. To go further, fathers not loving another woman except for their own wives and vice versa. Each family has their own standards and each family strives to live by those standards. If those standards are not met, it usually results in family issues and separations. To become the people of God's kingdom and children of our Heavenly Father means we must live by our Father's standards. But in order to do this, we must first find out who our Father is, what His true nature is like, 
what he finds pleasure in, and what he dislikes. As I mentioned earlier, the world's standards have always changed and will always continue to change. However, our Father is the only one who will never change today or tomorrow. Isaiah 57:15 introduces God as the High and Exalted One. For thus says the High and Exalted One who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place. The kingdom that lasts forever overrides time and location. The concept of time revolves around the beginning. And as we all know, our Father created the beginning of time. For that very reason, our God cannot be contained or be held back by time. Therefore, God can perceive all history simultaneously. This is what we call God's eternity. God also exemplifies transcendence, imminence, omnipotence, omniscience, ubiquity, and immutability. Transcendence is simply that God's existence overrides the material universe beyond all physical laws. This concept can be compared with the view that the universe is God. The Hinduism, Buddhism, and recent New Age history claims that the universe is God and we the people are part of the universe. However, the Bible tells us that God made the universe that is separate from Himself. Therefore, God Himself cannot be held back by the physical laws of the universe. Instead, God has complete control over it. Also, our God does not only transcend over the universe, He also exists within our physical world and thus is accessible to us in various ways. We call this eminence. God is the sovereign ruler of creation, and He has the ability to start anything and stop anything from happening. And God knows everything. Because God perceives all history simultaneously, He knows about everything. God knows all things of the past and of the future. This is different than just predicting the future, because in God's perspective, the future has already happened. God can see our future at the same time as our present time. He does not predict our future. He really knows it. God exists everywhere in the universe. We call this omnipotent. And lastly, God is someone who cannot change. He cannot change his true nature. For example, God cannot quit being eternal. He cannot stop himself from existing. Being more than infinite is one of God's natural characteristics. Let's examine this in more detail along with his morals. God's morals include love, holiness, truth, mercy, grace, and justice. The Bible often describes God as love and that God loves. The Bible also claims God's holiness. God is morally complete. God cannot commit sin through his thoughts or through his actions. God is morally complete and therefore complete in holiness. Our Holy Father does not lie. Our God always proceeds with truth and speaks with justice and his thoughts and actions are always in sync. Therefore, our Father is the truth. We know that God hates sin. However, God does not always punish sin. There are many examples in the Bible where people commit sin, yet they seek mercy from God and God allows forgiveness upon them. Also, as sinners and as God's enemies, God blessed us through Jesus Christ, even though we didn't deserve it. This is God's grace. God always proceeds with the right thing to do. He will reward the good and judge the evil because He is righteous. Love, truth, justice, and holiness are all words that describe God's attributes. Mercy and grace are the actions that result from it. Our one and only God is foreverlasting, powerful, infinite, holy, and loving. His nature can never be altered. He is constant and absolute. If ethical and moral standards come from God's nature, then that too would be absolute. If we are a true child of God, learning our Father God's nature is the first step in learning Christian ethics. In the future, we will learn more about what ethical standards by which we as Christians should live. 
This concludes today's episode. Thank you for listening, and God bless. Jesus loves me This I know For the Bible It tells me so
Jesus proclaims to the church of Ephesus that he knows their hard work and perseverance. He knows that they cannot tolerate wicked people, that they have tested those who claim to be apostles but have found them false. He acknowledges their perseverance and their endured hardship for his name and acknowledges that they have not grown weary. This is a very great compliment and this is something we should all emulate. It is the rebuke of Jesus to follow that is frightening. Jesus rebuked the church of Ephesus saying that it had forsaken its first love. We commonly think that we forget about our first love, but it clearly states that it has been forsaken. The original word for forsaken is ampeami, meaning to send away and to leave alone. They say that the second generation believers of the church of Ephesus did not have the passion of its first generation believers. The second generation believers did carry the same walk of faith, but they did not have the passion for Christ as their first love for Christ was lost. This is a bit worrisome because the Ephesus church did not have the love for Jesus Christ or the affection for the word, but they did work hard, had perseverance, did not tolerate wicked people, and found false apostles, persevered and endured hardships for the name of Christ. How is my walk of faith? What is the church today like? Does it seem like we as a church today are working hard and serving with the love of Christ and a passion for the word? Or like the Ephesus church, are we doing everything with a forsaken love in a routine and mannerly way? Jesus tells us to repent and return to the place where he is our first love meaning this isn't an issue we should overlook. If not, he tells us he will come to us and remove our lampstand from its place. For anyone who has wondered if the only thing that matters is to work hard in their ministry, giving offering money, and serve the church, this is the answer that Jesus gave us. If you take a look at verse 5, Jesus uses the phrase, Consider how far you have fallen. In the original meaning fallen, which means to fall from top to bottom, means to fall to the position of purgatory. Jesus tells us that we as Christians are the light of the world. He tells us if we do not repent, he will come and remove our lampstand from its place. It is important to realize that he did not say he was going to blow out the light, but to completely remove the lampstand. As we have been called the light of this world, we need to brighten up this world. But without the love we first had towards Christ, no matter what ministry we are serving, we as Christians cannot fulfill that duty. Is the light of Christ within me shining? Do people see Jesus inside of me when they see me? When people see me, do they earn hope as if they have seen the light out of darkness? If not, we need to repent. We need to restore that first love we had for Christ. Let's seek to restore that passion and love we first had for him. Why? Without that first love restored, whatever action and work we may do will only be rebuked and will only have a need for repentance. I sincerely hope that we may all restore our first love which we had for Christ, that our church may restore its first love, and that Jesus does not have to remove our lampstand, so that we as Christians may fulfill our duties to light up this world. We will now wrap up Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening as it has been my pleasure. I hope to see you this time next week and God bless. I give you my life. I give you my trust. Jesus. You are my God. You are enough. Take it all, take it all, my life in